Hey, hello, I'm Ren Ribeiro, and I want to connect with you about peace and justice. We are interviewing women who labor for peace, as we have forever and always will, until we all feel peace in our homes, our workplaces, our communities, and especially our bodies and minds. This initiative is named Mujeres Co-Labor for Peace. It's a show of intimate conversations with justice workers who are healing their self and communities from the effects of misogyny, capitalism, and climate change. Welcome to the show. This is the inaugural episode of Mujeres Co-Labor for Peace. As we are coordinating calendars with a few peace and justice workers to talk with about their work in the spaces of economics and climate change, I reflected on my own deep dive into the first tenet of this show, healing from the effects of misogyny. And I started writing. I'll say more about this soon, but before learning of the word misogyny, I knew as a child what it felt like to be ogled, to be made invisible, and talked over by male figures in my life. That continued through adolescence and through adulthood. I've made choices after careers in male-dominated spaces like finance and energy that allow me to not just notice misogynistic behavior and reject it, but to engage with others willing to talk about ways to improve. Being in a working class family that didn't talk about things left countless uncomfortable experiences, the kind that make you squirm around, unable to navigate the world. These were locked up in my body and mind. And digging into some of this discomfort in this show format seems like as good a way as any I've thought of so far to take action toward peace and justice. My name is Ren Ribeiro, and I wish you complete wellness and lasting peace. As outrageous as it may seem to some, the idea here is to arrive to this show and begin each episode with an inquiry of the self, asking ourselves, how is this beating heart right now? I will ask myself this, and I'll ask you to arrive here with a reflection on what is on your heart in this moment. Today, my heart is excited, and it's also feeling a little bit tender. How is your heart? And I invite us all to take a slow, deep breath of integration right now. Hmm. The intimate conversation today is about understanding misogyny and taking steps to get beyond it. This is a tough subject. Few people outside of self-identifying feminists, and there are thankfully plenty of male-identifying feminists, are emotionally available to contend with the subject of misogyny. But here we are, needing to address this topic with as much grace and heart as possible. I set a goal for this episode's topic to not delve too deeply into the webs of connection and concern related to misogyny and to provide a heart-centered overview of a hard topic that can inspire action, peace, 
and justice. I will share a few of my reflections and a few others' reflections about what misogyny is and why it's important to consider. My hope is that you grow inspired to think of a few women in your life that you may want to have a conversation with about this subject after the show. Maybe you'll watch the show together and share experiences. And it would be great if your takeaway was a fuller understanding of this deep-seated element of interpersonal dynamics that colors much of our worldview in society. It affects women worldwide, in the home, in the workplace, and throughout each stage of her life. My journey in understanding this big word, misogyny, a word that is too often defined as hatred of women, began in college. This hard and broad sweeping definition can make us recoil in denial or point to evidence that the hatred of women, especially as a political weapon, is a thing of the past. More than this surface definition is a somewhat compassionate way of understanding misogyny that I'm beginning to explore. Misogyny may very well be a process of shifting blame, particularly the burden of grief onto women, a shifting of burden that has become so habitual, even invisible to the many, to, to, to the point that many women cannot even see it. Grief that is too complex for many men to hold, grief deflected that often gets masked by humor. Grief is a whole show subject, so we may go down that rabbit hole together on another day. I was the first person in my extended family to go to college, and I did so with gusto, taking sometimes 21 credits per semester. I think most of what I learned at the time is so far back in my brain as to be inaccessible. But as I shared earlier, even before I learned about the word misogyny, I learned its substance. Through a media course I took as part of my interpersonal communications degree, I was given a portal into, or frame of reference for, understanding the way advertisements and media messages separated or isolated parts of women for sexifying, a word I just made up, and ultimately selling products. I knew this intuitively, but I needed a formal community process that academia can offer students for making sense of the complicated feelings that I had about all of it safely. Disembodied parts like breasts and torsos promoted the association of numerous brands and products in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s, like big tits and asses on hot rods or motorcycles for every month of the calendar year, with the implication that women were mainly sexual objects. The psychic and physical harm this level of disembodiment may have caused women is another aspect of misogyny that is enough for its own episode, but it is not yet in my sights for inclusion in the Mujeres Co-Labor for Peace show. If you know women who are co-laboring impactfully for this kind of healing and peace, please reach out so we can invite them to talk about their work. 
It might be simple and even defensible to assume that we've made a lot of progress since the 90s. Certainly, the Me Too movement and the Time's Up movements have united women in speaking truth to power. Getting films like She Said produced and getting media power abusers like 70-something-year-old Harvey Weinstein to serve 23 plus 16 additional years away in places like the Medium Security Mohawk Correctional Center are examples of the co-labors that brave women have made. I often wonder what women could have done in the 70s, 80s, and 90s without having to battle misogyny while battling sexism and other forces of oppression. These were the years when women were coming into political office, generations after women won the right to vote, after generations of fighting for suffrage. I also wonder what it was like for suffragists to finally win the right to vote, but not have anyone to vote for who represented their interests. While pondering like this, I went into Wikipedia to find more opinions about misogyny. I like to start at the end here with the see also section. What are folks associating misogyny with? Not surprising, exploitation of women in mass media is the first bullet and arguably the fourth, fifth, and sixth here as well. I agree with Camille Paglia's assertion that men don't hate women, they fear them. I may come back to some of these references later, but for now I'm searching for the words of those who are on the front lines of peace and justice. I love it when economists weigh in on misogyny because there's a direct tie to profit. This phrase coined by Denise Candioti and practice of patriarchal bargain, which allowed men to earn colonial power, is unacceptably still relevant today. And here's mention of Kate Mann, a Cornell University professor of philosophy and author of Down Girl, The Logic of Misogyny, clarifies the difference between misogyny and sexism as two branches of patriarchy where sexism serves to rationalize and justify the patriarchal order, and misogyny polices and enforces the patriarchal order. This is a lot to think about. To expand this a bit here, in Kate Mann's book, Down Girl, we find an analysis about why the misogyny leveled against Hillary Clinton in the 2016 election was predictable and why the dark underbelly of what she calls empathy, or the exoneration for privileged men who dominate, threaten, and silence women led so many to forgive and forget Donald Trump's history of sexual assault. I need to take a deep breath here, and I invite you to join me for 10 seconds. Certainly, the co-labors for peace and justice involve great investments of emotional labor to notice, to witness, to hold and stay conscious about, to educate about and to fight against 
with as much grace and heart as possible, the people, the beliefs, the behaviors, the expectations, and the establishments that continue to minimize women, body, mind, and spirit. Like in the act of gaslighting. This comes from a 1938 play in London and later an American film called Gaslit, dramatizing a marriage based on deceit and trickery with a husband committed to driving his wife insane in order to steal from her. The co-labors for peace and justice around misogyny also involved great investments of emotional labor. <clears throat> to notice, to witness, to hold and stay conscious about, to educate about, and to fight against with as much grace and heart as possible, the people, the beliefs, the behaviors, the expectations, and the establishments that continue to exceptionalize women, extracting profit in unjust, non-transparent ways from her creativity, her art, her words, her skills, her youth, her beauty, and all the while disempower women in increasingly sophisticated and violent ways. Let's go back to Wikipedia. Andrea Dworkin is a real leader here with her book, Women Hating. In college, I read her analysis on female Disney fairy tale characters, where powerless equals good and powerful equals evil. Not too unlike the sexual binary pitting virginity or chastity against sexual experience or liberation in the Madonna-whore dichotomy noted here. Internalized misogyny will have to be for another episode as it is that important. And I have zero interest in putting new words on fomented racism, fear-mongering, and other extremisms. Here we see a reference or references to a few dead philosophers' opinions and religious connections, which I'm going to skip over. <clears throat> it looks like Julia Gillard, Australia's first female prime minister, is the Wikipedia spokesperson for 21st century misogyny at the moment. She delivered a gloves-off speech on the subject to Parliament that went viral a decade ago. If misogyny is defined by and perpetuates the patriarchal order, it would be good to clarify the patriarchal order. But some dictionaries, like Britannica, call it a hypothetical social system. To purposefully not clarify something makes it impossible to understand, impossible to address, impossible to stop the harm it can cause. Looking at definitions here and highlighting hatred, a word that creates real friction, we see a lack of creativity, particularly by a few men given a lot of shelf space here. Let's take create a creative turn with anthropologist Melissa Emery Thompson from the University of New Mexico. Emery Thompson has researched family relationships in non-human primates and she notes that these relationships are consistently organized through mothers. I had learned that matriarchal bonobo apes were something of an exception to the patriarchal order, so I was quite pleased to have a broader perspective. 
One last book I will refer to is by Gerda Lerner, a multifaceted women's historian. She wrote The Creation of Patriarchy, which investigates the formation of separate cultures based on sex in ancient Mesopotamia. It may be a must-read for those of us who haven't yet reflected on patriarchal influences in our lives. So yeah, it's been a long time that the patriarchal order has affected women. Okay, so now we are ready to explore together a few examples of misogynistic behaviors. EverydayFeminism.com features a few easy-to-access descriptors to watch for. One is manterrupters. They are the men who hijack a group conversation or speak over a woman as she's talking, demonstrating that he believes his words are more important than hers. Two is the emotional labor dodgers. Everydayfeminism.com folks explain here that some men will pour their hearts out to female or gender non-conforming friends, but not reciprocate with equivalent listening capacity when said friend needs a shoulder. This is adjacent to the blame and grief-shifting behavior that I mentioned earlier. Three is the man-spreader. This is a new one for me. The man-spreader describes the space men feel entitled to take up even as they are unaware of their surroundings, making it impossible for anyone else to utilize a space that they should have equal access to. I love this one. And I hope we all understand mansplaining. It's the conditioned impulse for men to believe they know better, more, or the right way to do a thing and tell you about it even if you're their boss. It's different than the unsolicited advice givers, but not by much. And men often rationalize their actions by asserting their assumptions that you look like you need help. I won't go into all of these here, but for real, it's not okay to be told you sound sexy when you have a sore throat. It is not okay to negate anyone's gender identity. If she says she's a woman, she is. Behaviors can be subtle. Invisibilizing others in any way is hurtful. There is a lot of work to do here. This episode of Mujeres Colab for Peace dug into definitions of misogyny, along with some historical and more contemporary ways the fear of women can hold women down, and then featured a number of examples of misogynistic behaviors. We didn't delve deeply into the media dismemberment of women, but we'll attempt to address that creatively in the next episode. It is clear that misogyny is a very big topic. Join me for more of the conversation next time in part two on Mujeres Co-Labor for Peace. I am Ren Ribeiro, and I thank you for joining. This initiative is supported by Inner Fortune, the full-life self-coaching journal that is now digital. Join us for peace, and thank you for your heart.